This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. Climate change is caused because of larger economies, because of people sitting in London or New York or Beijing or Shanghai or New Delhi. We are more responsible for climate change than they are. And yet, every time we have to come up with a solution to deal with climate change in the Arctic, we make them pay the price for our actions. Today's episode is going to be an exciting new territory to explore. I'm thrilled to have on this episode of Jamsters, Dr. Dwayne Menezes, the founder and managing director of Polar Research and Policy Initiative, a London-based international think tank dedicated to the Arctic, Nordic, North Atlantic, North Pacific and Antarctic affairs. Its publishing content arm, The Polar Connection is the world's largest content platform for Arctic analysis and commentary. He's also the chair of the advisory board of Think Film Impact Production, a media company with specialist expertise at the intersection of film and policy. He's also the producer of four critically acclaimed films, which have been Oscar shortlisted, Emmy nominated, which by the way, we'll talk about in the course of our conversation. But most importantly, beyond all the titles and designations, it's absolutely great to reconnect and have a friend from the school days who's carved such a rich career path, traversing a range of adventures. And you'll shortly hear why. Dwayne, so good to have in Jamsters. And finally, we're getting to do this. Absolutely, Hartik. It's lovely to speak to you again. You've had such an incredible journey, Dwayne. Uh, we met last, I believe, physically in 2011 in Chennai when you were traveling there and I was um, uh, on, on a job assignment there. I think during that period, you were uh, pursuing history is what I remember because you've also done your PhD in history from Cambridge, University of Cambridge uh, and LSE as well. Please talk about that a little bit more. You see, I was born into an inter-Portuguese family um, and I was always quite interested in understanding issues of identity, of agency, of how uh, Christians of mixed heritage or people of mixed heritage would relate to an evolving world, a world that you know has passed on from the age of empires to the sort of new age of globalization, a globalization driven more by global businesses and, and modern nation states. It's, it's quite a different world we're living in today. And I was interested to understand how we locate ourselves as individuals, as groups, as communities, how our identities evolve over time. And that led me to develop this great passion for history. And it led me to focus on the history of the Inter-Portuguese um, while I was doing a PhD, starting off at LSE, and then completing my PhD at the University of Cambridge, where I spent four, uh, four or five most marvelous years I, I believed history, yeah, I believed history is very, very key to um, an understanding of the world today, especially if one wants to go into international business or international relations. I think we often underestimate how valuable history can be as a subject uh, that sort of illuminates um, our understanding of the world and our place within it. That's uh, that's quite an um, enriching perspective there. But I'm sure, uh, you know, when you started out and when you were in that phase of understanding and choosing your path, um, at least at least back when we were in school, I, I, I understand you have such a multicultural upbringing. Uh, however, uh, did that play like an important role for you to choose this specialty niche of history or were there also other options available? Because I, I, I vividly remember this, Dwayne, that uh, back in school, uh, it was it was not very clear that while broadly you could understand that you want to choose like arts and commerce and sciences, uh, but history in particular, wasn't that clear to you then? No, I, I don't suppose it was. I, while I had a great passion for history, I think it's very hard going to school like that where one would expect, you know, what once taught from a young age uh, that the right fields to go into if you want to have a relatively comfortable life Mm. It feels like medicine or engineering or uh, perhaps even the law or government or, or accounting, a profession. And I, I remember when I mentioned to people I want to study history, uh, they were absolutely clueless as to what my <laughs> prospects would be. And we're like, why, why would you waste all of the opportunities you've had growing up mm. studying a field so entirely obscure and so not straightforward in terms of job opportunities. <laughs> so true. But I, I've always been very much of an entrepreneur. 
and just starting businesses and taking those risks has never really daunted me or intimidated me. It's been the same for my love for history. I never found the risks involved in making that decision ever weighing more than the positives I saw coming out of embracing a profession, embracing a study area I would truly, truly love. And that's uh, generally very difficult to understand, right? Especially when we are uh, in the Indian context. Uh, generally, the options of our choice are limited to what would make the most concrete career, the safer options. And yet here you are talking about a completely obscure field, like you mentioned, a very niche space, which uh, people generally would not find, or at least, at least, at least back then would not be able to find the real world applications. Absolutely. But I think people, people often underestimate um, the transferable skills and knowledge one can gain in history. Hmm. Um, to, to, take my, to take my PhD thesis, for instance, I, I looked among many things at the history of these two into Portuguese doctors who arrived in Britain in the 1870s. And it marked 1880s or 1890s. It marked the start of this sort of diasporic presence in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. And again, what that meant was what started off as a history of two individuals also became, uh, in some ways, a history of medicine in the United Kingdom or in the British Empire. And that also then built a greater interest in medicine and healthcare. And so today, when I go into business and I have to talk to clients in healthcare or medicine, I'm able to understand this long history that precedes mm. our interaction. And so I do find that a combination, do bear in mind, I also did a business degree. So mm. I, I, the combination of the skills and the knowledge and the exposure to different areas again from history, combined with the ability to make those ideas have practical real world applications that can benefit uh, modern industry or, or politics, I found I found to be a very sort of a very useful combination. So yet here you are traversing a myriad of adventures. Uh, you are doing policy work, you're doing entrepreneurship, you are dabbling in field in the space of arts and whatnot. Um, I'm curious to know, Duane, how is it that you view yourself? Like what, what's your mental model? Like how do you view yourself as? I see myself as a social entrepreneur. And that's fundamentally, I think, who I am by personality and who I am uh, by purpose and by profession. So ultimately, no matter what I've done, whether it was my first think tank that I founded, the Human Security Center, uh, which was which is dedicated to so current and emerging issues in human security. So that would include, you know, we we do work from human rights to global governance to uh, promoting democracy and the rule of law, working with institutions like the Commonwealth. Uh, And that, all of those aspects, I would say, boil down to this commitment to entrepreneurship with a purpose, Hmm. um, with a mission, with a vision. The same thing, I suppose, was reflected in my second think tank, Polar Research and Policy Initiative. Again, when I founded this, and this is really taking over my life now, uh, I founded this to be, as you mentioned earlier, this international think tank dedicated to um, the Arctic and Nordic regions because I fell in love with Greenland and I wanted to do more in support of Greenland and the wider Arctic. Mm. Again, there's a very clear social, political, economic vision. And then even my film company, the film company I had co-founded, which I no longer run, um, once again, even there, we, we, we decided to produce and promote films that were able to propel were able to push forward social and political uh, messages, positive social and political messages. So we took on difficult issues and we tried to make films that would bring clarity or un- a greater understanding about those issues. So no matter, no matter what state in my life I was at or what enterprise I founded, the themes may have been different, but the mission was generally the same. And my profession is generally the same. I, I would define it as a social entrepreneur. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, you've, you've set some good points there, which is a good segue for me as well. So thank you for doing it. Um, the Arctic region has been your particular area of focus. Um, 
why that region i mentioned i mean you you briefly mentioned a little while back about about greenland something that you were smitten by um but but why that region of all things in particular yes that's a very good question hartik because i i never ever saw myself working in the arctic at any point in my life uh it it was the most strangely bizarre but also beautiful uh segue in my own life so i as i said it was you know after straight out of my phd in commonwealth history at cambridge i started working as uh, a consultant an advisor to the secretary general of the commonwealth and back then the commonwealth you know still had 53 54 countries as it does today and in that role i dealt with um you know countries like canada that stretch out into the arctic canada is this large commonwealth country that we often forget is also an arctic country when you were sitting in the commonwealth and i think if you approach in canada from an arctic vantage point you see canada is very much an arctic country and you mm-hmm. can sometimes forget it's also a commonwealth state and it's in my it's in my work in canada and with canadians uh, that i i encountered the people who lived in the 40% of canada that forms the canadian north when people in bombay or london often think of canada they often think of the southern border region that stretches from say montreal and toronto all the way to vancouver mm-hmm. we forget canada stretches just as much on a northwards as it does east west and the more time i spent in and with people of the canadian you know in the north and with people of the canadian north i began to understand these different people groups that live there groups like the inuit and the other first nations groups and the meti and i i i came to respect their cultures so greatly and they taught me so much of what i know about the arctic and i fell completely in love with the extent of sophistication in their knowledge in their lifestyles and the understanding of the world because here are a people who have adapted so beautifully to one of the most extreme parts of the world and have created a civilization that is so perfectly suited uh for those temperatures in which a a lifestyle uh rooted in London or New York or Bombay could never comprehend or replicate itself true and and that led me to understanding the history of the inuit and the geographic spread of the inuit and then it began to realize that you know people in greenland many of them the majority of the people in greenland are also inuit and they're sort of very similar people to or the same people as the canadian inuit but they've been cut across by these you know colonial western borders that have been drawn in recent or you know in in the last millennium so i started spending more time in greenland i went there uh, backpacking hmm. uh, mid winter which is a very inadvisable thing to do but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was glorious it was sort of minus 35 degrees celsius sometimes wow. minus 40 wow. i absolutely loved it had a terrible accident and nearly lost my life what do you say yeah i came back from that with this complete love for greenland and wow okay that's that's interesting what happened with the accident though well you see i i was <laughs> i cannot drive and i did specify that very clearly to the person who offered to take me in a snowmobile ride Mm-hmm. but for some reason when i arrived at the hotel uh, i had uh, you know there was a snowmobile for me and a snowmobile for the driver and a snowmobile for my friend mm-hmm. so i ended up taking the snowmobile and for some odd reason i i the snowmobile just crashed it went up the sort of snowy mound and crashed against possibly the only lorry in greenland that might have been <laughs> moving across the snow and i wake up 15 minutes later just hearing the sounds of people calling out my name my my friend and the driver like are you alright doing are you alive and you know <laughs> I, there was sort of blood around and my hands were all squished and you know oh, it was it was a terrible terrible episode in the moment because you know it's greenland you didn't have any hospital nearby to which i could go to immediately it was a sunday the only hospital was like 2 kilometers away i had to actually walk to it and then wow. try and treat myself and it took ages for a doctor to arrive and it was a very interesting experience and i even had to go to the hotel after uh, the hospital after 2 3 hours because the uh, snowmobile driver you know insisted i was fine and that i should continue 
going on the you know going on a snowmobile ride across the <laughs> frozen lakes and frozen mountains. And so by the time I got to the hospital, my hand was three times its size. I had two broken ribs. And oh anyway, long story short, long story short, um, you know, uh, the, I, I, you know, people can be quite, you know, people who have an exploration mindset can be quite strange at times. I woke up and instead of getting scared by Greenland, I fell completely in love with it. It is, I think, the most beautiful country in the world. Wow. And my experience was more in the interior of Greenland. You know, you won't mm-hmm. experience that if you are in a nice, lovely urban setting or a, a coastal community. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it was literally just being in a tiny boat, sailing through magnificent, you know, high icebergs and feeling so small and so tiny um, is a very beautiful sentiment. It's a very real sentiment because it helps you realize that no matter how much you do in life or where you go or where you study or what you study or how hard you work, at the end of the day, what you are is a small, tiny speck of dust in the face of this universe. And actually understanding that and appreciating that, I feel I felt is more empowering than weakening because it gives you a sense of perspective. And I find myself every time I'm too stressed or too unhappy or too frustrated, I like going to Greenland because Greenland restores in my life that sense of perspective that then helps me embrace everything else I do with a greater sense of sort of peace and calm and 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 moderation, I suppose. Wow. That's definitely true, right? I think there's something extremely majestic about, I mean, I haven't been there. I've only seen videos of the space. Um, but 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 my my understanding of Greenland actually happened because of Conan O'Brien. Um, he, I think, was shooting a remote there. Um, and uh, he uploaded his video, I think, on his channel. And, and I've seen that like quite a few times because it's so hilarious. It's so funny. Uh, and, and I think the Inuktitut is the language there, I believe. Oh, yes. Uh, Inuktitut is language for many Inuit people. Yes. Right. Uh, or, yes. Yeah. So I think, he, I think he was supposed to be on air and talk about uh, the, the weather and stuff. And he completely bombed. And then he was, you know, taking uh, a tour across the whole city with a local guide there, showing some various beautiful spots. I think, and I think it was so visually colorful, so beautiful, such chill people when he got on the video. So I, I think I have a very distant, but a very fun understanding of Greenland, but I'm sure you've, you've been there, lived it also, unfortunately had an accident there. So you have a much, much deeper perspective. Uh, Curious to know that because you've also dabbled and you create a lot of content on the platform with Polar Connection, um, h- how do you view storing, storytelling rather as a, a tool uh, to bring about awareness in the Polar regions then? That's a very good question, Hardik. So let me start off with what we do and I'll tell you why we do what we do and how storytelling fits in. So uh, I, the think tank is called Polar Research and Policy Initiative. Uh, it's based in London, but we, we are very active around the world. We host 50 or 60 high-level dialogues around the world every year, at least in non-COVID years when, when we can travel. Uh, and these dialogues sort of bring together heads of government, heads of state, ministers, uh, policymakers of all sorts, diplomats, uh, business leaders, civil society leaders, media people, academics, and, uh, and community leaders, very importantly. And we bring them all together in one room how we talk about issues, our shared challenges, shared opportunities, any priorities that we wish to discuss. Sometimes we relate this information back to governments. Sometimes I, we, we contribute to uh, parliamentary sort of inquiries, to government consultations, to the work of intergovernmental organizations like the UN or the IMO. And that's sort of the work a think tank does. But then in addition to that, we have a publishing platform called the Polar Connection, and the Polar Connection has around three to four million site visitors. And what we do here is we we compile stories from across the Arctic region, uh, mostly analysis, uh, where we where we look into the recent any recent development happening, and we will provide analysis and commentary about it. And we have the team of most talented and knowledgeable fellows who sit around the Arctic region or in other parts of the world with an interest in the Arctic. And they produce this content for us. I also serve as vice president of um, a media organization called Arctic Today. Mm. And Arctic Today, again, is a circumpolar news outlet that produces news. 
So the Polar Connection uh, is sort of the largest platform for uh, an Arctic analysis and commentary. Arctic today would be sort of the circumpolar, the leading circumpolar platform for Arctic news. Mm. I also work with organizations like Jonah. I sit on the advisory board of Jonah, which is this excellent photojournalistic media outlet based in Iceland and serving uh, the West Nordic region, you know, from Scotland to Norway to Iceland and the Faroes. And they do the most beautiful work using uh, pictures for visual storytelling. Then we have organizations like the Barents Observer uh, operating in the north of Norway or High North News in sort of West Northern Norway. And all of these organizations do the most wonderful work. So where does storytelling fit in? Because of how vast the Arctic is and how remote many of the communities can be, uh, the Arctic is, uh, you know, the Arctic is a sparsely, popul- sparsely populated region, and you have these tiny communities spread across vast distances. The big challenge we have in bringing news to the Arctic is it's very, very hard to send a journalist to a local community to cover the latest story. Hmm. It's not possible. How do you? Basically, it's like having 20,000 20, different countries spread across vast distances, uh, and with, in between, it's sort of you know. Um, It's, it's difficult terrain, uh, terrain or lack of adequate infrastructure. The cost of travel can be prohibitively expensive. So it is very hard running an Arctic news organization that can actually bring news from all across the Arctic region. This is why it's very important in how you structure it to have like global entities, regional entities, um, local entities that then produce the news. But this is where storytelling is really important. For a lot of locals, like the Inuit or the Sami, stories from a big part of the way they narrate what's happening in their own lives and the world around them, what happened in their histories. And sometimes we have a tendency in the West to downplay uh, the importance of story as a mm. means of reliable uh, or sophisticated knowledge and information. But the one thing the Arctic has taught me is that Western understanding of indigenous knowledge sometimes is farthest, or rather always is farthest from the truth. Because I, I have actually, I sometimes get asked by, you know, uh, some friends in Britain, like, oh, you go down to Greenland all the time, what are you teaching them? I'm like, what am I teaching them? That's such a condescending colonial <laughs> question. I'm not teaching them anything. What can I teach them as a boy mm-hmm. who lives in Kensington or Fulham? No, no, no. Since I've arrived in the Arctic, It's the people of the Arctic who have been teaching me. I go there because the Arctic is my school where I learn from experts a little bit about their environment and try and learn from their expertise. And I think that's why my think tank has done reasonably well. We've always been a think tank that's as much bringing, working with Inuit or working with the Sami, working with Gwich'in, the different tribe, the different sort of people groups in the north, to bring their indigenous, to bring their knowledge and their traditions uh, to the world, because they have an enormous amount to teach the world. So in many ways, we are more like an indigenous people's think tank that the rest of the world could be, you know, listening to and learning from. But but the role of story is so key to all of this. So one, I believe, never discount the importance of story. And two, it is only by building on local traditions like storytelling can we make the locals who live in the Arctic and understand the Arctic the best to start talking about the issues that affect them. And it's only when global media is able to create a platform for their voices to be heard, for their voices to come forward, that's when we will have a better understanding of the Arctic. Because otherwise, if you listen to anything about the Arctic, you hear you hear Save the Arctic a messaging from environmental groups because it's mm. all about green groups around the world, eco-friendly groups, making the Arctic sound like a a living conservation, you know, a, a conservation ground only, sometimes ignoring the people who live there, the people who want to work there, the need to have schools and hospitals and jobs and businesses. And then on the other hand, you sometimes hear stories of these big companies wanting to go and drill for oil or for minerals or for any other sort of resource. And again, what happens then is global understanding of the Arctic is shaped by these two polarized camps, you know, big industry and big environmental groups, both of which sit outside the Arctic and talk about the Arctic. And to me, that's the problem. This is not how we 
that's not, imagine if all people knew about India was being produced by people who lived outside India, big mm. business or environmental groups saying, oh no, we should not have development in India, or no, 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 we should go drill, drill, drill in India. Most Indians would get tremendously offended. That's what's happening in the Arctic today. What we need is to correct that equation. The best way to cover Arctic stories is by empowering Arctic people to get their voices across to the rest of the world so they can talk about their stories and their lives and their problems and their issues and their knowledge, because that is how we will restore to the Arctic and to the world a more balanced and a more holistic and a more correct understanding of the Arctic region. I hope that helps. That's such a rich perspective. Uh, one of the things that is now running in my mind and, and now that you mentioned that sitting from the outside giving perspective about India, the same analogy when sitting from the outside talking about and for the people of Arctic while I completely understand the intent is is noble, it's good. Um, but do you think that the people of the Arctic, the indigenous people of the Arctic feel actually threatened uh, because of all the globalization, the mining and the development that's happening in the region? Like any people group anywhere in the world, uh, the people of the Arctic have diversity of views, even in the, even among themselves, right? They are, they are just equally, in my mind, they're sort of equally sophisticated as any group around the world. So I think we must not ever, I'm not saying you were doing it, but sometimes there's, there's a temptation in the rest of the world to see people of the Arctic more as a people who are the object of an anthropological study because of their differences rather than just seeing them as just our everyday friends and neighbours who are very much similar to us. And I mm-hmm. take the latter approach. I, Despite all the differences that may be there between any culture, cultural group in the world, I, I, I see them as being just as, you know, just as diverse uh, among themselves. And so many, many Arctic people will embrace globalisation and the opportunities that come with it. And that would mean, you know, people, many, many, say Greenland, many young Greenlanders today are embracing professions like accounting, law, uh, medicine, uh, government jobs. But then at the same time, there are many who still um, still turn to and cherish traditional occupations like hunting and fishing and, and um, some more land-based or sea-based activities. And also, there isn't a polarization between the two. There are many who may choose to sort of work in a to fish in the winter in the summer and uh, go work in a supermarket in winter. So people are able to combine. So all, all I'm saying is, you have the same. So yes, you have people who feel threatened by globalization. You have people who see the opportunities in globalization, and that's the beauty. So what I'm trying to do with my organizations is create that platform so they can have these discussions and debates among themselves without necessarily the rest of the world stepping into their shoes to have it for them with the presumption that they cannot have it themselves. Because actually they do a very, very good job when they speak for themselves and among themselves and with each other and with the world. They are their greatest ambassadors. True, that that actually makes a lot of sense because I think who can speak about their problem better than their own selves, right? I think that's where it comes from. But when it comes to now that you mentioned, it's such a nuanced perspective that you spoke about actually looking at them as friends. And I completely am on board with that viewpoint because that's essentially what it is. Uh, they're not really objects. Um, but now that now that we think about uh, as, as someone who's sitting so far away from the actual geography and not in contact with people, the only communication with this part of the region uh, for majority of the world who's not traveled there is the media consumption, right? The content that people consume online. While it's the perception that they're very pristine places, untouched places, um, my probably thought came from the space now that think about it is also that you don't want to dam- damage those places. You don't want to sort of, you know, spoil the pristine, the beauty of what it is, the sanctity of what that place is. And probably that's where it's all coming from, right? I think that's where I mentioned the word threatened, but I completely, uh, you know, stand corrected on the viewpoint there that uh, they're equally ev- involved in the globalization process as much as anybody uh, in, in any part of the world. But w- what is your take on how uh, the media should talk about stories around climate change? I think uh, there are so many discussions and you see this much more closely than most of the people is that the the division that some people are in favor that there is a climate threat and there are this other school of people that would say that it's not. 
what is 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 this really happening is there a shift uh, and and how can media actually choose the right side of this equation that you're talking about that's that's a very good point Hardik. i mean for me it's it's difficult but also simple there is a saying right never talk about us without us so i'll start with that never talk about the arctic without speaking to the people in the arctic uh, or never talk about arctic people without consulting arctic people but i'd go further never speak about the region without speaking to the people who live there. So do, do not speak about the Arctic without actually speaking to Arctic people. So say if you were a global newspaper covering the Arctic, yes, I'm delighted that they would contact people like me who sit in London, as they should, because we do have a great knowledge. We do we do try and build a repository of knowledge about the Arctic uh, in, in what we do as an organization. But beyond that, speaking only to someone like me would be very incomplete. And then you can speak to a scientist and you get a sort of Western science perspective about what's happening in the Arctic region. But again, it's slightly incomplete. And then you can speak to somebody in industry or an environmental group and you get their perspectives. But again, it's very incomplete. So my to, to bring about a greater degree of completion in media coverage of the Arctic, I think it's absolutely fundamental that, that journalists speak to people who live in the Arctic and especially indigenous people or northern peoples who speak to them, understand, you know, just hear their voices and perspectives. I think that's going to help massively. And circling back to the point where uh, do you actually see a climate threat, a climate change, which is uh, damaging uh, the ecosystem? Massively. And um, yeah, and sorry, this, this feeds into your earlier question as well. Yes, because... Let me tell you how I, I always believed in climate change, but like many people in London and New York, my embrace of my of the understanding of climate change was more armchair. I didn't sense as much of an emergency. I didn't sense as much of a a um, threat until I went to Greenland for the first time. Because when I was in Greenland, um, I met these. Because partly, you know, we're, we're taught in London, we hear the perspective of environmental groups and we also are then given this counter-narrative that there's an environmental lobby that's pushing this agenda. And so even if you are someone like me who doesn't believe in, in the sort of devious agenda, you still know that every interest group has an agenda. And so there is a certain degree of cynicism about how true are the truths they're espousing. Uh, but when I was in Greenland and I... I um, I think I was in a town called Ilinasat, and I, I went for this iceberg tour, and I heard this sort of uh, the boatswain who was giving, you know, commenting about the icebergs. He was saying to me how, when he was younger, the icebergs were much, much higher, and or you know, the, the, the glaciers were sort of much more, much bigger, and how the world around him has really changed. And here I am north of the Arctic Circle, uh, sitting with a local who comes from a very small community further north in Greenland, totally not part of that dominant London, New York, San Francisco, green lobby, any sort of lobby group, environmental interest group, who is expressing very similar views as this environmental groups. So can we really discount what the environmental groups are saying entirely? I don't think so. So I that that's when I started to realise that, you know, uh, climate change is very much real because I then sort of hung out with people in the south of Greenland, people who, or central Greenland, people whose traditional jobs were hunting or fishing. And they were talking to me, the people in fishing spoke to me about how, because the waters are warming in the North Atlantic, many of the fish that prefer cold water and traditionally swam in the waters of the North Atlantic are now moving northwards and migrating northwards to the to Arctic waters in the search for cold waters. So that means all fishing occupations are also going to be affected because people who may have traditionally fished for cold water preferring fish in the waters of the North Atlantic may find their availability of those fish species decreasing. On the other hand, people in Greenland might see a greater surge in those fish species. But then you might have other fish available to a certain community in Greenland that are now migrating further north. Likewise with the caribou. If you are a community that hunts caribou, that lives on caribou, and your caribou are migrating in new directions, in different directions, uh, because, because the world around them is changing, again, that changes how subsistent your lifestyle can be. I'm sorry, how dependent you can be 
on um, on the land and how how much a subsistence lifestyle is going to be impacted by by changing climate and changing migratory patterns of the flora and fauna of the fauna uh, that thrive on that land and so you can't discount it and then you have issues like in Siberia where we saw a couple of years ago where the permafrost in the ground the frozen permafrost is the frozen ground under the ice. And because of climate change, the permafrost is thawing. Now, you may have seen news articles about how you have mammoths uh, being found almost entirely well-preserved in the permafrost, hmm. because the permafrost has the tendency to preserve uh, to preserve uh, fauna through time. But what, what that also means is a couple of years ago, when the permafrost was as a result of permafrost thawing, we had a number of of reindeer of caribou across Siberia just dropping dead in different places, and nobody could quite understand why initially. Until one of the reasons was that the thawing permafrost was releasing pathogens, releasing viruses, or you know from a previous period that were coming back that were being released into the atmosphere, and affecting these animals. So if you begin to think that, that there's a possibility that the next global pandemic could be caused because of old pathogens being, that are now frozen in the Arctic permafrost being released as a result of climate change into the atmosphere. So you see the, the implications of climate change go far, far beyond melting sea ice. They can have severe impacts on global public health, no matter where you live. And, and so we have to be very, we cannot just sit back and say, I'm very glad somebody is working on the environment. No, I think it's important we all do our part. We all play a role because climate change is real. Where I'd, I'd say, you know, the debate should be is are we just going to focus, sometimes climate change becomes an excuse to prevent all development in a region like the Arctic. And that's where I believe it can go terribly wrong. Because the people of the Arctic, for instance, are not the ones responsible for global carbon emissions. They're not the ones causing climate change. They mm. are the people, people who live in the Arctic or people who live in small islands around the world, like the islands of the Caribbean or the islands of the Pacific or the islands of the Indian Ocean. They are, the polar regions and these small island states are the are the regions of the world that will feel possibly the greatest impact of rising sea levels or uh, melting sea ice or whatever, based on where you are, north or, north or tropical. But those people are not the ones causing it. They're mm. not the ones causing climate change. Climate change is caused because of larger economies, because of people sitting in London or New York or Beijing or Shanghai or New Delhi. We are more responsible for climate change than they are. And yet, every time we have to come up with a solution to deal with climate change in the Arctic, we make them pay the price for our actions. We mm. tell them not to have development, not to have schools, not to have, you know, like, oh, you don't need another, you don't need more development in the Arctic region. But they know what is wrong on their part to desire a self-sustaining economy that can mm. have better infrastructure and better jobs. They're not the ones causing it. So I think there is a injustice that has crept in to the global narrative of climate change. It all feeds into what I call climate injustice. So yes, on the one hand, I do believe in the need for greater, uh, greater global embrace of the environmental stewardship movement. But at the same time, I believe there should be a greater embrace within the environmental movement among people who care for the environment about the nuances of of life and, and of nuances of life in the Arctic and also an understanding of how injustice, social and economic injustice can also affect the environmental movement. And we need to make sure that the people of the Arctic and the people of tropical small islands are not paying the price for global climate change more than the big economies of the world are, because that would be terribly unjust and wrong. I hope that helps. It's a, it's a rather complex argument, but it's actually quite, it's quite important. 
No, no, I think I think that's that's very very important. I think to touch upon uh, one of the points that definitely stood out for me um, in 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 this. Uh, perspective that is shared is it's actually more outside in right i think it's more about the other economies looking at arctic as one region which should not be developed i mean it's actually the other economies the developed the developing economies which need to shoulder more responsibilities in terms of reducing uh, the impact that is um, happening on the polar regions absolutely because let's say america if we have companies like at the moment global shipping 90% of the goods you and i use anywhere in the world gets to us through maritime shipping. Um, and shipping is responsible for 3%, 2.7 to 3% of the world's carbon emissions. One way to reduce um, climate change, or rather to you know, human, human role in climate change, would be to bring down the amount of carbon being emitted by ships and to reduce the carbon footprint of the goods we consume. How do we do that? by embracing zero emission ship technologies, by making sure that the ships of the future uh, are not carbon emitting. They, they move possibly to hydrogen or wind or other alternatives, a combination of the two, or whatever other alternatives there might be, or by some sort of biofuel. Uh, there, there are different alternatives out there. And what we need is it's when we have companies like IKEA uh, or Amazon, the large ship company, the large companies of the world that are cargo are the cargo owners, or and they're the ones who are, have the clout to tell the shipping companies of the world what sort of environmental priorities they're going to need uh, to see fulfilled for them to be using those vessels. So it's when a company like Amazon or IKEA says to a shipping company, "We're no longer interested in using your ships unless there's zero emissions." That's when ship owners are going to be and ship operators are going to feel the absolute need to move to zero emission ship zero emission ships they're already feeling the need but you know it's this whole everyone has a role to play and then that's when the banks need to wake up and understand okay this is where we need to put our money we need to finance the development of zero emission ship technologies and then the governments and policy people need to get on the bandwagon and go like, oh, this is what we need to incentivize and support the development of zero emission ships, the development of zero emission aircraft. And, and so ultimately, if you really want to have an impact on climate change, we need to have the world's big companies like Amazon, like IKEA, play a much greater role, not just in their own processes, but also in the processes at every stage of the supply chain globally. Hmm. Uh, to make sure carbon, otherwise all we do is we pass the buck from one tier of the supply chain to a tier down the road. And because of how global logistics is structured and how global supply chains work, what a company, it's very easy for a company to just do, do a couple of things right that then, you know, greenwash their own image and then pass the buck down to somebody else. So I think that's why thinking of global Think of the global economy as a agglomeration of supply chains is very important, even for the environmental movement. So we begin to hold supply chains responsible. We begin to hold companies across the supply chains. Uh, we begin to insist that they produce greater commitments and that one state of supply chain holds the other state of the supply chain responsible. That's when we're going to see a real difference. Just sitting back and not in New York, going in a protest against some sort of job being created in the Arctic is not the solution. Yes, and sometimes when you have a massive oil and gas project, uh, I understand the reason for concern. And I think that's, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are, you know, this, this attitude where any development in the Arctic, uh, people tend to frown upon. Whereas, no, no, I completely disagree with that narrative. People in the Arctic need jobs. They need social, economic security. And it is important that the world does not stop investing in the Arctic because of a misguided assumption that investing in the Arctic or developing the Arctic in a sustainable way as well could lead to some sort of economic damage or environmental damage. No, no, sustainable development is key. I think the, the global landscape is going to be improved if the larger countries and larger companies begin to focus on themselves and, and make greater commitments, mm -hmm. de demonstrable commitments, to reducing carbon emissions.
So you mentioned about sustainability as as one one part of this conversation, and um, tourism has become sustainable. Um, I'm not talking about the phase that we are currently in, which which has been massively hit uh, by by COVID. But but let's say when when uh, you know travel vloggers, which you know have have created so much of content and so much made like world a global place, which we can access through a click of a button. Do do according to you do travel. Vloggers and these content creators, the media companies also share a responsibility of how they project the stories, how they project the content to the world as well. Yes, absolutely. Now, I I don't know if that's a, I don't know if bloggers are a big threat to the Arctic. I think the Arctic could actually do with more of them. Okay. Um, I think the problem with certain parts of the Arctic is over. I mean, there is over tourism in some parts of the Arctic, and that's a problem. But the problem of over-tourism in the Arctic, I think, has less to do with bloggers and just to do more with, you know, uh, how exotic people find the Arctic and how, uh, you know, they sometimes come in, because it's expensive, they sometimes come in these large mass tourism groups and, and go to a certain part of the Arctic. Let me give you an example from Iceland. Iceland is a country of, say, 300 to 350,000 people. And every year you could have one to two million uh, tourists coming into Iceland, which is like many more times the country's population. But often what happens is when the people come to Iceland, they go to uh, the same places. They arrive in sort of Keflavik airport. They'll go to Reykjavik, the main, the capital, which is like an hour, hour and a half away. They'll go to the Blue Lagoon. They'll go to the Golden so, you know, they go to these, uh, this Golden Circle route where they see uh, these three or four attractions that are really uh, world famous now. But they very rarely depart from these routes. And what that means is that you have a certain route in Iceland which sees this saturation in terms of a number of tourists. It's heavily, uh, sort of heavily stressed from a mm-hmm. tourism perspective. And then you have other parts of Iceland that have an enormous uh, set of strengths and values and an enormous amount they can showcase to the world that get a relatively smaller number of tourists, just a trickle down. So I think it's very important. We, we've done a lot of work with various Icelandic entities as to how to, how to uh, create a better mix, how to, how to reduce tourism flows in certain areas to go with tourism and how to redirect those tourism numbers to other parts of the country where uh, they're not getting enough tourists and where they can do with those jobs and economic benefits that come with tourism. And it's true. So instead of just taking a blanket approach, like tourism is good or tourism is bad, what we need is a more uh, nuanced, consultative approach. So our project was called uh, Sustainable Tourism Development in the Nordic Arctic. It was led by, it is led by uh, two, uh, two of our fellows, uh, Dr. Brooks Kaiser and Dr. Chris Horbel, once a professor in Denmark and once a professor in Norway now. And the project was funded largely by the Nordic Council of Ministers through one of their arms, which is called Nordregio. And again, what, and, and also the Danish Ministry of uh, you know, Higher uh, Education sort of supported the project. And what we did as part of this project is every year we went down to a different part of the Nordic Arctic. We took down um, tourism experts. We took down um, yeah, some of the world's leading researchers, practitioners, philanthropists, uh, business owners in tourism to a different part of the Nordic Arctic every year. And in that part, they would interact with their local counterparts, local tourism business owners, local tourism researchers, local tourism-related policymakers. And it's that exchange of ideas where we were able to facilitate dialogue uh, and exchange of ideas from other parts of the world and Iceland or from Iceland in other parts of the world. We did the same in northern Norway and the same with the Faroe Islands. I, I found this model, this consultative model, to be hugely beneficial mm-hmm. uh, because it's in the sharing of ideas that everyone comes out wealthier, uh, you know, because ideas multiply the more you share them. And uh, and that, that, that really helps. So when it comes to issues like tourism, Again, I tend to take the approach that a blanket yes or a blanket no is never the right approach. Uh, when you're dealing with people and livelihoods and, and environments, nuance is not an option. It is the necessity. Hmm. Hmm. 
So when you mentioned that, uh, you know, by sharing the ideas, it, it expands and, and, and it's better actually when, when we share our perspectives with other people, uh, the consultative approach has worked well in your perspective. Was, was that also the overarching perspective, uh, the idea, the theme of uh, the co-founding of the Think Film Impact production, uh, the media company as well? Yes, very much so. So my, my co-founder there is, a, is perhaps one of the most dynamic women leaders I know called Danielle Turkov Wilson. Um, and Danielle and I met while I was working for the European Parliament. I was consulting in a consulting role for the European Parliament on freedom of religion and belief. And mm-hmm. Daniel was also working in the same position. And that's where we met. And I was still running Human Security Center. And we began to talk about a shared areas of interest, like human rights, human security, uh, religious freedom, um, uh, and, and migrants and refugees, for instance. And that's when we were like, well, I produce reports. And however good a report is, it's read by a a say, a few thousand readers. Mm-hmm. But imagine if we could bring the power of film to the world of policy so we can combine cutting-edge messaging and research coming out of academia and the policy worlds and combine it with the mass dissemination means of film how much greater impact we could have. And it's that desire to amplify the impact of our work that led us to found Thinkful Impact Production. And Thinkful Impact Production was able to, we we defined it, as I said earlier, as a company that would work with filmmakers to produce and to promote films that tackled some of the world's most challenging social, political, environmental issues, and that also pushed forward social, political, and environmental messages of positivity and change. And and we've had the greatest impact. The first film was called My Enemy, My Brother. And we worked with a Canadian and Australian filmmaker to make that film. Daniel and I were very much impact producers. We were the ones who were responsible for creating a global campaign to increase visibility and profile and impact of the film and its messages in the communities that most needed to hear it, communities in politics and industry. And the film spoke about sort of two refugees, an Iraqi man and an Iranian man. He both had first encountered each other by sheer chance um, during the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. And who later, by again, by sheer chance, met again when they were both being treated for PTSD, for post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. as refugees in Vancouver, Canada. And that sheer reunion uh, lent to, uh, again, through storytelling, lent to this absolutely stunning, stunning story uh, being brought to the world. And, and we decided, I mean, Anne Shin and Melanie Hawkin, who made the film, decided to uh, to create initially a short film about it for 15 minutes. But it was so powerful and so compelling that before we knew it, the film was sort of at every major film festival in the world. It was um, at the Oscars. It got shortlisted for the Oscars uh, for Best Short Film. It got nominated for the Emmys. For you know, we Daniel and I flew to New York for the Emmys, um, you know, Nielsen Television Emmys, and and it was marvelous. It was a, a a tremendous opportunity. We were able to screen the film to various UN agencies. We we uh, shared the film with our friends in the White House. We shared the film with various parliaments around the world, and we were able to see how a film that humanized migrants and refugees uh, could could play such a great role, not only the work we did as an organization or Daniel did in her organizations, but also how we could have a great role in the work of uh, the UN, for instance, because in that year, it was the year of migrants and refugees at the UN. So UN, the UN General Assembly prioritized migrants and refugees as a theme. So we're talking about 2015 or 2016. Um, and so again, um, we saw the power of film. We dealt, we made more films after that, a film called La Soledad. We, we were impact producers for a film called La Soledad uh, that dealt with Venezuela, 
we we were impact producers for a film called uh, uh, Complicit, which was made by an American filmmaker, Heather White, and it dealt with occupational health issues in China as a result of the use of toxic chemicals mm-hmm. in, in supply chains of global companies, global electronics companies like Apple, and how you know many local Chinese workers are really suffering terrible consequences on their health because of poisoning through these chemicals. And people who use uh, these smartphones around the world are sometimes completely ignorant about uh, the impact these electronic items can have as a result of supply chains in different parts of the world. And that really led to some of the big companies really making commitments in the right direction, which we appreciate. But that's the sort of films we did, films that would have a massive global impact and make the world a better place, not just for us and for our children, but also for those who uh, could do with that amplifying voice. The one thing Daniel and I were very good at was being megaphones for causes. So we used that skill to really uh, bring awareness and visibility uh, and and listening uh, to to causes that really we believed could could use the power of film to be to have the stories told. These these areas that you've mentioned, Dwayne, are um, are difficult. They are complicated issues. Do you ever, or have you ever, rather, you know? I mean, has it has it rubbed people the wrong way? Um, higher up the order, uh, have you faced uh, opposition in releases? Because these these could be important issues that people need to know, but but it might it might cause you know trouble. Uh, has that ever happened with you? I mean, I I perhaps it did. I often tend not to notice. I mean, when you are a political animal, you tend to have skin of wax. And so I, I tend not to notice how much water accumulates on the wax because it just rolls down in five seconds. So, I mean, otherwise, if I didn't have a skin, if I didn't have skin of wax, I never survive in my fields. So I, I tend not to notice these things or to ponder about them too much if I do notice them. But having said that, I, I remember some trouble uh, in relation to China when our filmmakers were making the film complicit dealing with human rights issues in China. That was, I, I remember there being a great degree of, uh, of, of some, of some degree of bureaucratic challenge, uh, to put it mildly. Um, uh, I, I don't, I don't think the other films face as much of a, I mean, of course, as you can imagine, if you want to film in Iraq, Iran, uh, you are going to face, uh, severe limitations. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, it's the filmmakers that would be better people to speak about those experiences than me, because I come into the process only when, uh, you know, it come, I, I used to come into the process when it came to really creating the impact campaign for the film. And, you know, I may support, I may support a film with content development, um, and also working with governments in some instances, but mostly, you know, we are the distribution side and the promotion side on the impact generation side. So yeah, it's, it's, but I, I don't really mind. I think if you don't, if you don't cause opposition, you aren't really doing anything good. If everyone loves you, then there's a problem. I mean, because clearly it's possible, I think, for people to love you at, at the same time for you to speak truth to power. And so that's, that's really what I prefer doing, not, not necessarily choose to rub people the wrong way, but I do hope all my companies continue to speak truth to power and also help those in power to make decisions in a more informed fashion. We have never taken a confrontational approach. Ours has always been a collaborative approach. So our approach has always been, we'll, you know, we'll work with the policymaker and work with them to understanding the challenges they face. So I have so much empathy for those who commit their lives to public service that I think, you know, very often I have so much respect for them. And I see them trying to do their very best. And sometimes it's just a genuine shortage of information out there that they can use. Or some, sometimes it's an abundance of information, but that's not very accessible to those in policy who may not neither have the technical expertise nor the time to process large volumes of technical information. So again, um, that's where Think Tank comes in. We are able to make information accessible to policymakers, whether through reports or through the film company, through film. So I do believe that um, making knowledge accessible 
is fundamental towards creating a better world. And that then connects to why I spend so much of my time uh, focusing on developing media flat- platforms like Polar Connection, Human Security Centers platform, um, you know, working with uh, my, my, my other partner, Alice Rogoff, who's this wonderful American media executive. And I work with Alice Rogoff and Arctic Today. Uh, we're, we're doing more work now. We're trying to create an Arctic business journal, which would serve as a financial times for the Arctic. But again, the reason I'm so committed to news media and analysis platforms is precisely so people around the world, no matter where they sit or what income category they have or what access they have to these very expensive science publications and journals or whatever, still have access to the best information in a very comprehensible, accessible, affordable way. That is fundamentally important to all my companies. While uh, you are traversing these multiple pursuits, um, you are you are managing, at least it seems effortlessly. Uh, how does it that you go about managing your time, your schedule? I'm, I'm very curious to know that. Oh, I love all of these areas so dearly that I don't see them as work. And because I don't see them as work, I just wake up every morning the happiest man in the world. Well, most of the time, unless I have to do the boring sort of paying bills and taxes and accounting or whatever. But otherwise, Mm. apart from the admin, I genuinely wake up every morning loving what I do more than I loved it the previous day. So it doesn't matter how much work falls on my desk because it just gives me more opportunity to do what I love. And I also love people. I think that helps. I think if you were a complete introvert, you might find – uh, my line of work quite unreasonable or quite difficult. I think I, I, I genuinely love people and get energy uh, through my interaction with people. So I think that fuels I'm able to work with hundreds of people doing different things every day. And I, it doesn't tire me. It excites me. It refreshes me. It energizes me. And I think that that personality thing does come into play. I know a lot of people talking about business always try and sort of eliminate, they try to make it all about nurture and less about nature. I don't think that's entirely true. I think, you know, some people have a genuine greater disposition towards risk or towards entrepreneurship or towards, um, as in my case, towards um, people, just loving people and extroversion. Um, and, and again, yes. Yeah, so um, also there's a unifying thread between all my different companies. They all relate to social causes. Hmm. So the fundamental work is the same, no matter which company I'm working on. The external teams might be different. In one case, it might be the Arctic, uh, you know, Polar Research and Policy Initiative might be focusing on the Arctic. Human Security Center might be focusing on the Middle East. I think from Impact Production might be focusing on a film, say, in Japan. It doesn't matter because the fundamental work across the companies is very, very similar. And I always surround myself with the most talented, knowledgeable people who are far, far, far better than me. And I think that's always been the secret source. So I always have people around me as colleagues, as fellows, as advisors, people I can count on for their advice, for their experience, for their knowledge, for their support. Without them, I would not be able to manage any of these companies even for a single minute. That's... um that's definitely uh, empowering to hear and 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 i think i think to many people out there and those of you are listening on this podcast is that uh, it's it's perfectly all right if in life you have multiple pursuits to follow it's not about essentially only going deep in one space uh i think from what i'm hearing Dwayne, is that your overarching theme has been social impact but these mediums through films or Polar Connections content or other companies that you run, the overlying theme has been about creating impact. That's the theme that you run with. Absolutely. And I cannot have put it any better than you already have. That's wonderful. Dwayne, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, there's so much to talk. There's so much to chat about. There's this one thing that I must ask this uh, when when you are, are choosing a certain endeavor, is there a financial angle to it? Because generally, uh, a social angle has a connotation that, you know, there is a non-profit angle. Uh, but, but do you think there can be a merger in your perspective about commerce with a good space? 
Absolutely. Now, this is an area I must confess has not been my greatest strength. I have been so driven and so passionate about my causes. I always put people first. I always put their problems first. I always put my causes first, uh, which means I'm able to help everyone else except myself. So one of the things, one of the greatest, steepest learning curves in my life has been how can I continue doing everything I love and how can I continue to have all the social and political impact while creating businesses that are entirely financially viable. And that's been, actually over recent years, we had made great leaps forward. Uh, and, and I began to realize also when people around you feel very much invested in the work you are doing, and when they know that the work you are doing is good and competent and genuine and sincere in its desire to manifest as good, as greater good for all, I think you begin to find allies around the world who step in at the right time and provide key support that helps you get to the next stage in your life. At least in my life, I've always encountered that. At the right time, at every stage, I have people coming into my life with precisely those skills and gifts that uh, contribute to to uh, making my business a little bit more uh, feasible. And I must say, more recently, I've been, I, I think we've now reached that stage, and I'm sure that the learning curve is going to long continue, but I do believe we have reached that stage where all the companies now are f- entirely financially viable, entirely self-sustaining, we continue to need, you know, self-sustaining. I don't mean we fund ourselves. What I mean is we we have viable financial models in place. Mm-hmm. And uh, where do we go from here? Is really so. I, I do believe it is possible. And uh, yeah, if there was one thing I would um, wish I had done more at the start, it it would be to have thought more about financial gain at the beginning, because I never, I don't have, it doesn't come naturally to me. I don't Mm -hmm. think in terms of financial gain. So, but sometimes you don't need to think about financial gain as greed. In my case, it it translates more as financial viability. In order to build viable businesses, you have to think about how you sustain them. And so that's been a very important lesson for me. So Dwayne, uh, what, how is it that people can reach out to you, connect with you, uh, get some of your uh, content, access to it? All, all the companies sort of have platforms that are entirely uh, visible online. They're all, they're all public. Uh, polarconnection.org. Uh, if you wish to know more about Polar Research and Policy Initiative and the exciting work we're doing in the Arctic, if I may, exciting for my call it so myself, mm-hmm. um, in the Arctic and Nordic regions, if you're interested in the work of Human Security Center and the work we're doing in South Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, and other parts of the world, have a look at uh, hscenter.org. Uh, if you are interested in film, just Google ThinkFilm Impact Production and see the work that Daniel Wilson is now leading. If you are interested in news from across the Arctic region, go to arctictoday.com, uh, Arctic Today being the news outlet that we work with. And stay tuned for Arctic Business Journal that hopefully will be launched in the next few months. So quite a bit there, a nice reading list. Uh, if you wish or if you're re- you know, your listeners wish to learn more about the Arctic or anywhere else in the world. That is fantastic. Dwayne, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you, Hardik. Thank you for having me on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of Jamsters, please make sure you subscribe to EPLog Media and all major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, GeoSavan, Ghana, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, among many others for upcoming episodes. You know, I love listening from each one of you. So please make sure you share this podcast with your friends and family and your colleagues. And please make sure to drop a comment on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there. And also, if you're listening on EPLog Media, they've recently launched a feature where you can comment on the particular episode too. Your support is my fuel. You can connect with me on Instagram at the rate Hardik Vaidya or on LinkedIn too. Catch you on the other episode.